this morning and that you will turn in them to Matthew 12. This is the last time we'll be in Matthew for a few months. As uh, some of you already know, starting next week, we're going to jump into our Summer in Psalms series. And so today we finish chapter 12 and we anticipate starting chapter 13 in the fall after our summer is concluded. You'll find Matthew 12 on page 818, the passage that we'll be in today, uh, page 818, if you're using the Bible's in the backs of the chairs, and as I try to say as often as I can remember, take one of those Bibles, give it to someone who might need it, or take it and use it yourself if it would bless you. Well, I I would imagine that most of, or maybe all of us, would agree that while there are many elements of our society and culture that are concerning, the devaluing and undercutting of God's design and desires for the family is near the top. We don't have to try very hard to see it. It can be found easily. It's everywhere. Portrayed in fictional families in pop culture stories. You can hear it in the lyrics of much of the music in our culture. You can see it in the way advertisements are designed. Sadly, we can see it in our own homes, whether the ones we grew up in or the ones we're in now. The way that the family is in our society is, we would have to agree, a problem. We would also need to agree that the solution to that problem is the gospel. The redeeming grace of God transforming lives individually and families as a whole by the miraculous power of His Spirit as the message of the good news about Jesus Christ is believed and Sinners repent and trust in Christ as their Savior. But did you know that for all of us who are believers, our families, the people we live with, grow up with, and the way we view them, and how we live in them, and how much we value them, As important as it is, is not even the most important family that you are part of. The family of Jesus is the subject of this final text in Matthew 12. We see in this text one of the few appearances of Jesus' earthly family in the Gospels, as well as some words from Jesus about his realist family. The context is in this setting of having come off of a relatively heated back and forth between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus had just finished these last portions of what he said regarding the need for true repentance and faith more than external conformity to religious ritual. And Jesus had just gone so far as even to call that generation of Jews evil and adulterous, spiritually adulterous, unfaithful to their God. And it's in that setting that Matthew tells us that in verse 46, as he's speaking to the people, his mother and brothers stand outside asking to speak to him. 
Let's set the stage a little bit here before we jump in with, with three notes in the context. First of all, that this is one of a few instances in the scriptures where we get an explicit reference to Jesus's earthly family, the parents he was born to, the siblings he grew up with. One of the few instances where we get this apart from those birth and infancy narratives at the beginning of these gospels. You see in the verse here, verse 30, uh, 46, his mother and brothers. That is speaking of Mary, of course, and his brothers. In fact, we will get another instance of them in the next chapter, but we won't see that for quite a while. In chapter 13, you might not even need to turn a page. You'll see it in verses 55 and 56, where the crowd says, is this, talking of Jesus, the carpenter's son? Isn't Jesus the carpenter's son? Talking about Joseph. Isn't his mother called Mary? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And aren't his sisters with us too? So we see a mention of his family just another chapter later. But on the whole, in the scriptures, it's not a very frequent thing. But we see in that next chapter in this, in this gospel, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and sisters. The sisters aren't mentioned in, in 1246 for whatever reason. Perhaps they just weren't there at that moment. It is widely supposed by linguistic uh, and historical scholars that the exclusion of Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, in verse 46 of our passage um, f- from this mention of his earthly family may indeed imply that Joseph had actually passed away by this point. And if that's true, it's a very interesting thing that means Jesus can sympathize with all who have lost an earthly parent. So anyway, here is this mention of Jesus's earthly family in our passage. The second thing that you may have noticed already in terms of context is that there's no verse 47 if you're using an English Standard Version. If you have an NIV or an NASB or a CSB or a KJV or even an NLT, you will have a verse 47. So why on earth does the ESV not have a verse 47? Well, there are relatively few variations in the 5,000 plus Greek New Testament manuscripts. But this is where one of them is located. A variation in all the 5,000 plus Greek New Testament manuscripts. And the majority of the oldest available Greek New Testament manuscripts don't include what has historically been numbered in our Bibles, verse 47. I put uh, verse 46 and 47 in the CSB up on the screen for you. See verse 46, his mother and brother standing outside, and then verse 47, someone told him, look, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. It's basically the same thing that was said in verse 46 with just a a note of the person telling Jesus about it. Verse 47 does appear in later manuscripts, but some, many scholars suppose that verse 47 was therefore added by some scribe who perhaps read verse 46 and read 48 and said, well, we need something in between to make it clear that someone came and told Jesus about it. When in reality, it's implied clearly in verse 48, he replied to the man who told him about it. And so the ESV translators, editors, decided to keep it out because of a concern with putting something in the scriptures that wasn't actually part of the originally revealed and written scriptures. 
but my preference for whatever it's worth, and it's not very much, is that I think it's a mistake not to include it because you could simply include verse 47 and put a little note in the margin like perhaps some other versions do that say the majority of the oldest manuscripts do not include verse 47. But I have good news for you. Either way, whether verse 47 is supposed to be included or not, it doesn't make any difference doctrinally or theologically or the message of this passage. But I think it could be confusing to either a younger believer or an unbeliever who may look and say, oh, there's a whole verse missing. See, the Bible is has full of errors and we can't trust it. No, I don't think that's the case at all. This does not mean that the Bible is not trustworthy and that it is filled with mistakes. In fact, it is the most reliable ancient document in human history. And the ESV is a really good translation and version. So you can be confident that if you have an ESV in your hands, you are holding God's word in your hands. I wanted to note that so it doesn't concern you as we go along. The third note is that this passage is closely connected to the events that precede it. You see verse 46, it says, while he was still speaking. And so this event is not a separate event that seems to have happened later, even though we are taking, it, taking a look at it in a separate sermon. It may be, in fact, that this was a kind of an interruption because it says while he was still speaking. It may indicate that while he's in the middle of these words in verse 45, so also will it be with this evil generation. And then someone comes and says, your mother and brothers are outside. And if that is indeed the case, that there was some kind of an interruption, we have just another example of the master teacher taking something in, his, in the moments of his teaching and tying it to his words to the Pharisees and the connection to his broader message regarding his kingdom. And that message of this passage, I believe, is that devotion to Jesus is priority number one for disciples of Jesus. Devotion to Jesus is what's at the heart of this passage. It's what's at the heart of Matthew's whole book. And indeed, it is at the heart of the, all of the Christian life and our Christian scriptures. And so what I'd like to do today is flesh out that truth by identifying four truths in this passage that show us that devotion to Jesus is priority number one for disciples of Jesus. The first truth is this, that entrance into Jesus' kingdom comes with a new familial identity. As I've already pointed out, Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders here, and he gets word from a man, verse 48 tells us, that his mother and brothers are outside, and they want him to come and speak with them. That's a fairly boring detail, but the way that Jesus responds to this may, to us, seem a bit cold and harsh. He replies to this man who tells them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Kind of like, who really is my mom? Who really is my brothers? We have sort of a hypothetical illustration of this in our congregation. As many or all of you know, my mother is a member here. And so imagine I'm having a conversation with someone, maybe Paul up here after the corporate worship gathering, and maybe John Middlebrook comes up to me and says, hey, your mom wants to talk to you. And I say, ah, who really even is my mom? <laughs> I bet John would be confused. And I bet my mom would be a bit hurt. 
She might say something like, oh, I'm pretty sure I'm the one who carried you to term, delivered you, tucked you in bed at night, put band-aids on your knees, made sure you had food in your belly, paid for all the electricity you used, and dropped you off at college. Yeah, that would be me. <laughs> and so this is a little startling if you're paying attention, isn't it? Jesus says some amazing things, doesn't he? What's Jesus getting at with this response? He's getting at the fact that his truest family includes all who are part of his kingdom through faith and repentance. We're going to see that more as we go on. Being part of Jesus' kingdom, which is the whole thing that Matthew wants to get across in his gospel, which is why we've called this series The Unexpected Kingdom, being part of Jesus' kingdom includes a new identity. There is transformation, spiritual transformation that takes place that transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. And Jesus is communicating this by sort of illustratively questioning whether Mary and his brothers are really his family or not. And of course they are his earthly family. And you can bet your life, kids, young and old, teens to kindergarten, well, kindergartens are downstairs, kids to teens to fourth grade, the kids who are in here, that Jesus was perfectly respectful, obedient, loving, and kind, and gracious in his family every single moment of his life. This should not lead us to think that he viewed his family as some lesser thing that he didn't need to worry about. No. But what Jesus is getting at here is the fact that even the good, important, and beautiful bond of our earthly families is not where the ultimate identity of a person lies. The ultimate identity of a person lies in direct correlation to their relationship with Jesus. That's what defines who you really are, even more than your earthly family. And you know, as I think about this, I'm struck with the fact that our, our identity being connected to our relationship with Jesus more than, and in, in a sense, not even at all, ultimately, spiritually, in our families, is actually really good news for us. Because that means that whether your family is all kinds of broken and messed up, or generally pretty healthy and whole, certainly not perfect, you will be let down and disappointed by your family somehow along the way. And every earthly family is at least susceptible to all kinds of brokenness, though not everyone will experience everything. Because we know family members hurt one another. Children forsake their parents. Parents can abuse their children. Whether or not your family is all kinds of broken and messed up, or generally pretty healthy and whole, you will be let down by your family on earth. In fact, you can take this even further and think about the fact that all of us sometimes comically groan when we begin to display some of the traits that our parents have passed down to us. This is a really classic one of these. I'm putting my family on, on in the display case this morning with my dad. We kids joke about my dad's sort of old man observations about random things that don't matter. Whether it's we're in the airport and he'll say something like, I wonder what the electric bill is for a place like this. 
and I've started doing it. I've started saying things to the kids like, I wonder how, much, how many gallons of water are at the Great Wolf Lodge or something like that. We can't escape it. Every single one of us starts acting more and more like our parents. I hope that's not a shock to you. It's true. Every single one of us is like our mom and dad, and sometimes that's scary. But if you are part of Jesus' kingdom, you will forever be in the family of God, and that will be what defines you, not how much you act like your mom or your dad and not the ways that your parents have failed you, and not the failures that you have had in raising your children, and so on and so forth. Because if you're in God's family, his love for you will never fade or waver. Jesus' care for you will never cease. The Spirit's activity in your heart and life will always be present. Forever. No matter what. If you're his. And so yeah, I'd say that's pretty good news. Because as thankful as I am for the family I grew up in, and many of us can testify to various things that we're thankful for about our families, it's simply not true in my life or in yours that nothing was ever wrong, that no damage was ever done, that I'm not going to display some of the negative characteristics that are in my family. But no matter how broken or damaged or negative or anything else that our families might be, if you're in the family of God, that's your identity. Because entrance into the kingdom of Christ comes with a new and transformed familial identity. So I suppose another way we could say this is what I have is the second truth that this passage teaches, which is that membership in Jesus' family transcends membership in our earthly families. In other words, using this word transcend, in other words, is goes beyond or is greater than. And so our membership in Jesus' family as his disciples goes beyond and is greater than our membership in our earthly families, no matter what they're like, how good or bad. And so, yeah, that's right. That means that even if you have a solid and loving and exemplary Christian home, that's not as good as being part of God's family. And it means that even if you grew up or are in a dysfunctional, damaged, and draining family, if you're in the kingdom of God through faith in Christ, you're earthly family experience is not going to be at the core of who you will forever be. Your family relationship with God is. There's something interesting going on here in the scene that Matthew narrates for us in verses 46 through 48. It says that his mother and brothers stood outside. And so we have to wonder at least a little bit why Mary and the boys were not inside wherever Jesus was teaching. Some scholars seem to think that Matthew may have been wanting to indicate that Mary and the boys were outside because of either a lack of or a struggle with their faith in Jesus and had a desire to keep their distance. And that's not an unreasonable uh, idea. In fact, if you look up at the screen, John 7 verse 5 says that not even his brothers believed in him. There was some tension in Jesus' family regarding what they thought of him. His brothers, the children of Mary and Joseph, after Jesus' birth, did not believe in him, at least at first. And so it's a sensible deduction that Mary and the boys may have been trying 
to get Jesus out of this discussion with the Pharisees because they thought he was behaving badly in some way. We don't know for sure, but it's possible. And so it may be that Mary and her sons were outside at that moment because they were outsiders in, in that sense. And whether or not that's, a, that's an intentional point here to be made about Jesus' family being outsiders spiritually just as they were outsiders physically with regard to where he was teaching, I'm not sure. I'm certainly willing to defer to people who are more studied and scholarly than I am who think that that's what's going on here. But even if it's not an intentional thing on Matthew's part, it's certainly worth noting and considering in light of what we do know in the broader context regarding Jesus's family's lack of belief in him at certain points during his ministry. That's just a fact. It is something that some of his family members struggled with at times. And I think that ought to remind us that our devotion to Jesus and his kingdom and our familial identity with him does, may, sometimes get in the way of our devotion to our earthly family. You could say it the other way too. Our devotion to our earthly family may sometimes get in the way of our devotion to our heavenly family in Christ. And while the scriptures clearly and explicitly place a high priority for caring for one's family and being devoted to it, to it, it must never supersede our devotion to Jesus and his family. In fact, turn back just a couple of pages if you can or need to, to Matthew chapter 10. Verses 21 through 22. Wasn't long ago Jesus said these things. Matthew 10, 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Even families will be turned against one another for the sake of of Jesus. Look at verses 35 through 37 of that same chapter, perhaps on the same page that you're on, where Jesus says, I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And then he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus alluded to this very thing already. Have you ever thought about this in your own life? There is a closeness, a transcendent unity in the family of God that goes beyond the closeness and unity in a relationship with our earthly families. And, of course, if you happen to be in a Christian family, you get the joys of both. But all it takes is one unbelieving family member for you to know what I mean. And think about it the next time you visit with family, maybe even this summer, in the coming weeks. Perhaps there's someone in your extended family that's not a believer. You still love them deeply. You still enjoy their company. You still have warm and affectionate memories of years gone by. But the truth is that the thing that's most important to you, if you're truly a disciple of Jesus, is not the same thing as what's most important to them. And so you're not really on the same page about the most important things. 
least not when it relates to the most core and central truths of who you are and what your life is all about. Sometimes that may lead to animosity. Certainly doesn't have to always. But you know, as soon as you walk in those doors on the Sunday after you're back from a family trip, you're with the people of God who are on the same page as you about the things that matter most to you, assuming you are truly a disciple of Jesus. And there is a unity that transcends the kind of human unity that we can also enjoy. You know what else? The familial nature of your relationship with believers in this room and indeed believers all over the world will remain exactly the same forever in a way that cannot be said necessarily of your earthly family. Have you ever thought about this? I mean, Jesus even says that there's no marriage in the resurrection. So there's some different things about our eternity that's coming in terms of how we relate to each other in those kind of official relationships. And he had just said that sometimes in order to follow him, you have to leave your brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And so there's a very real sense, listen closely, in which your brothers and sisters in Christ are more truly your family than even your earthly family is. Did you hear that? Now listen, I don't think that Jesus had, I already said this, but I've got to say it again, Jesus, that Jesus had any intention of undermining the importance of our earthly families. In fact, I started by mentioning that I think one of the biggest problems in our society is the decay of the family. But I wanted to take that and make a bigger point that as important as that is, our heavenly family transcends all that. so much we could take away from this and maybe our fellowship groups can take it and run with it at a later time but at least one implication of this i think is that some of our intentions behind quote unquote family comes first in this life can be at times misguided please don't hear me say that family should never come first i don't believe that at all but we must be careful not to take family first and take it too far. And listen, that's hard for me to say because I'm Italian. That's ingrained deeply in me that family comes first. But I mean it. Again, it's not that the family isn't massively important. You need family movie nights. You need board game nights. You need to go on vacation together. You need to worship together around the dinner table. You need to have a fire pit with s'mores and all that stuff that needs to happen in your family. Sometimes you need to do some of that stuff even in the place of some non-essential church activity that's taking place. But for true followers of Jesus, membership in his family transcends membership in our earthly families. And so I think that must mean that sometimes we will sacrifice, quote-unquote, family time for the sake of the family of God in his kingdom. And just one potential example would be staying for prayer lunch next week because praying with God's people is so important that you're willing to sacrifice certain normal rhythms of your earthly family in order to participate in it. Just one example. It's not going to be the case for everybody. The priority of one's relationship with Jesus supersedes the priority of one's relationship with anyone and everyone else including our families, which is why then Jesus motions to his disciples in verse 49. Stretching out his hands to his disciples, he says, here are my mother and my brothers. 
You see, these disciples that Jesus stretched out his hand to and motioned towards had made a commitment to follow Jesus at great personal cost and through faith and repentance. That brought them into Jesus' kingdom family, and that set them apart as being part of that transcendent family of Jesus in comparison to Jesus' earthly family. It set them apart as those who really were closest to him when it came to what mattered most. And it tells us also in these verses that it led them to do God's will. That's the third truth. That doing the will of the Father characterizes members of Jesus' family. And that's the heart of the message of this passage. That devotion to Jesus is priority number one for disciples of Jesus. Jesus says in verse 50, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus uses this word in verse 50, the third word in in the ESV, the word does. And that's just the normal and common and frequent Greek word used in the New Testament in relation to any kind of ordinary action. It can sometimes be translated make or making or doing, does. And you know, the issue of doing in the Christian life can be sometimes a bit of a tricky one. Before I get into that, we have to just note that the requirement of doing should not unsettle our confidence in or understanding of the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone, right? Jesus isn't saying in verse 50 that whoever does the will of my Father in heaven will therefore become my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is not saying that it enters you into his family. He's saying that it's evidence that you're in his family. He's saying that the display of our devotion to him results in our being, results from our being familially united to him. And if we're not careful, as I've already implied, we can get these things out of order and therefore out of whack and eventually start down the path of legalism like the Pharisees. We've got to be careful with that. Because if we're not careful, we can begin to believe and teach that doing is what leads to discipleship, but it doesn't. Discipleship leads to doing. If you become a disciple of Jesus, you will do the will of the Father. It's not the other way around. It's the doing that characterizes, or we might say is the normal display of a member of Jesus' truest family. I think, understandably, we Christians sometimes are afraid to emphasize the importance of doing as disciples because we don't want to become legalists. It's a good instinct. We shouldn't want to be legalistic. But let me just note as a little bit of an aside here. Brothers and sisters, obedience is not legalism. The action of obeying God is not legalism. So don't be afraid to obey. Don't be afraid to pursue and desire doing the will of God. Because obeying is what actually distinguishes disciples from hypocrites. The Pharisees were hypocritical 
not because they obeyed, but because they were taking it to a place that it wasn't intended to go. And the heart behind their obedience was often contaminated. So, so the point is that doing does not precede discipleship, but it proceeds from discipleship. You with me? We must never minimize the importance of doing in our discipleship, even as we seek to guard ourselves against putting the doing before the being. The doing will come from the being. And by the way, that ties to our, uh, our men's partner study in James. All of you guys who are in a partner study, you are either already there or you're going to get there pretty soon in, in chapter 2. It's what James uh, says in a sort of importance, important and notoriously challenging passage in chapter 2, verse 17, where he says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I'll let you guys go through that in your study this summer and into the fall. The doing, though, that Jesus is talking about here in verse 50 is doing the will of my Father. And so we have to ask, what is the will of my Father here? Well, I think in the context of chapters 8 through 12, everything that we've already seen in Matthew's Gospel, that you could summarize what Jesus is saying by saying it this way. The will of the Father is embracing Jesus as King and obeying his commands. And you know, if you want examples of what it means to do this, to embrace Jesus and follow and obey his commands, how about all of these things in chapters 8 through 12? Follow me in 8.22. Do not be afraid. Have faith in 8.26. Pray for a harvest of souls in 9.38. Go tell the good news of the kingdom of God in 10.7. Have no fear in 10, 26 through 31. Take up your cross and follow me, 10, 38. Do not doubt my timing and plans, 11, 6. Listen, 11, 15. Repent, 11, 20. Rest in me, 11, 28. Do good, 12, 12. Repent and believe, chapter 12, verses 41 through 42. Probably a good place to start. So if you want to be part of Jesus' family, the truest family you could ever have, Jesus says you have to do the will of the Father, but he doesn't mean that works saves you. So how, do, how does this happen? Well, the fourth truth is that devotion to Jesus follows true repentance and faith. Doing follows being. When you are in the true family of Jesus, which comes at conversion through repentance and faith, you will be devoted to him. That is what had happened with the disciples. The disciples that Jesus mentioned in verse 49, when it says, stretching out his hand toward the disciples, and said, here are my brother, mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of my father is my mother and sister and brother. These disciples had undergone the transforming work of salvation in their hearts through faith and repentance. We don't get a lot of details for every single one of them, but we do get details for some of them. Remember Matthew, the guy who wrote this? He was a tax collector. And he left his crooked and corrupt profession and left behind lots of money that came from that profession and followed Jesus. Simon and Andrew had left their fishing business and embraced Jesus in faith. 
and were truly devoted to him. John and James had left the family business, left their father and mother. These men had turned from their former lives and embraced Jesus in faith. And of course, that doesn't mean that these were men who never wavered and messed up. Read the rest of the Gospels. You see that clearly. There was plenty of that. But Jesus doesn't ask for flawlessness. He asks them to follow him. And their devotion to him was genuine. You know, it's a beautiful thing to note this, that later on, Jesus' family did believe. At least some of them. You know who the author is of the James study that the men are going through? Jesus' brother, James. And you know, in Acts 1, I have it on the screen here for you, it says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. This is after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. So we don't get a whole lot of detail of how this fleshed out on a day-to-day basis. And while what we do get is a little startling at times in terms of Jesus' relationship to his family being uh, expressed or at least hinted at here in this passage, we do get the end of the story. And the end of the story is that Mary and his brothers, maybe his sisters too, and Luke just didn't mention them in this verse, did believe eventually. And I think one way that that encourages us is to keep praying for our own family members who don't yet know Jesus. Another is that if it's at all possible that at the time of our text, Mary and his brothers had already believed but were dealing with doubts and Jesus was correcting them, then it serves us well as a reminder and correction to us. If you are part of Jesus' family, you have repented of sin and believed on Jesus. But if you are part of Jesus' family and you've been struggling to live in light of the fact that your membership in Jesus' family transcends any other relationship you could have on earth, Jesus graciously calls you through this passage to repent and of whatever you might need to and be refreshed and renewed in your hearts regarding your standing as being part of God's family. Because my brothers and sisters, if you are truly a disciple of Jesus, you will be devoted to him. Your relationship with him will be one that's characterized by doing the Father's will through the faith and repentance that leads you to embrace Jesus and through obeying Jesus' commands as you continue to follow him. Your membership in his family will transcend every other human and earthly relationship that you have, whether it's your spouse, your parents, your children, because you will have been given a new identity. You will be a brother slash sister of Jesus. Now, if you are here or listening online or on a recording later and you've never truly repented of your sin and believed on Jesus as Savior, what this text calls you to do is just that. Repent and believe. And if you have any questions about that, I'm going to be standing up here at the end of the service for a few minutes and eager to talk to you about that. Well, there it is. Four truths from this text, all centered around the fact that disciples of Jesus are devoted to Jesus. 
Our devotion to Jesus is necessarily connected to having been given a new and transformed identity in a familial relationship with him. One that transcends all other family relationships, one that's characterized by doing the Father's will, and all because we've repented of sin and trusted in Christ. And you know, it's interesting that this text would come up at the very end, or I should say the pause point of our series in Matthew as we go into summer. Because now school's out, vacations are going to be taken, and one of the realities of summer is time spent with family. That's a good thing, and I hope you have a blast doing it and that you do it in ways that honor the Lord as often as you're able. But even as we pursue godly and redemptive ways to be rightly devoted to our earthly families this summer, remember that at the core of who you are, if you are a child of God, is a member of Jesus's family. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for these truths that simply through faith in Christ and repentance of sin, we are now part of your family. I pray that you would help all of us to live in light of that reality that we would hold our families as loosely as we should, even as we hold them as tightly as we should. That we would remember that whatever family past we have or family present we're living in or futures that we're afraid of, you are our brother, Jesus. You are our father, God. And we are in your family, and that is what defines us. Help us to live that way. Help us to continue to seek to obey Jesus and follow him. And help us as a church family to encourage and remind and even exhort whenever needed one another to continue on faithfully in our devotion to Jesus as disciples of Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen. Let's take a few minutes and pray quietly together.